Well, good morning, church. Glad you're here, whether here in person or watching online at North Avenue, wherever it might be. So glad that you've chosen to come and worship with us. I got a couple of things just as we begin. First, I am a doctor now, and uh, <clears throat> just want you to know it doesn't change anything. I'm still the same guy. In fact, I want you to call me Scott, uh, except for the ushers. I demand they call me Dr. Slocum. Other than that, other than the ushers, I just do want to say thank you to my church family uh, for the, the, being such a part of our lives and all these years of ministry together. I was so surprised last week. Humbled and honored and glad that you could be a part of it, and I just say thanks. Thanks to our elders, Dwight Safer, my wife, a part of putting, some, putting the weekend together, unbeknownst to me. Uh, I, I don't take really well the fact when I'm just told you're not preaching on Sunday, I don't know why, but I'm back in control today, so I feel good about that. But my sincere, my sincere thanks uh, to every one of you. Just a couple of quick things. Uh, one, Easter is coming. Invite cards are by the doors. Would you please take a bunch of these out and hand them out? Uh, these do absolutely no good to us on Easter Sunday or after. They're only good these next couple of weeks. This is the means in which to invite people to come join you for, for Easter service. And if you've been here for the years, you've heard me hear it say through the years. There's two times a year where people are most attentive and most apt to come to church. Christmas and Easter. Uh, when you ask them, you'd be surprised, and the people that would say, hey, I've thought about that. Maybe I should. You put a card in their hand and say, hey, we'll meet you at one of the services, so you end up coming to three services. Good for you. Meet three different people, come in three different times, but use these cards. Our, our prayer always for Easter is that there'd be so many folks that would take that first step in their journey, and oftentimes they'll do that simply because you asked. You'd be amazed how many people will say yes simply because you asked them to. So hopefully you'll participate in that. Last thing, uh, you know, just hearing the announcement, egging your neighbor. I remember a day when that wasn't a good thing. Um, I can remember a day when I did that and I got in trouble. Uh, I mean, he, he, he needed it. He deserved it. But other than that, I mean, not a good thing. But now you can egg your neighbor and have it be a good thing. What a great idea. And I'm hoping that, I mean, literally hundreds. I hope they're the run out of eggs. I'm hoping hundreds of you will take a bag of eggs and go egg your neighbor. Again, all in that same context of starting a conversation and maybe coming to church with you. So participate in that if you would. Uh, we're going to jump into our series again this morning, get back at it. And let me start with this thought process. Wouldn't you agree that some of the most incredible people that you've ever met are people who have these believe it in spite of stories. These people that have a story to tell in spite of what they've gone through. They have a faith in spite of what they've gone through. I mean, let's be honest. It's easy to be a believer. It's easy to be a follower of Jesus when everything's great. It's easy to be a follower of Christ when you're living the charmed life, when you meet the person that you think you're going to marry, when you have your, that firstborn baby. You know, you go through these different moments. It's really easy to be a follower of Jesus in those charmed moments of life. And I'm talking about those people who seem to have this incredible faith in spite of circumstances. You know, those moments that we go through, these incredible difficult times, difficult circumstances, when people seem to have an undaunting faith when they're going through financial difficulty, medical difficulty, health issues, family issues. Those people that have this faith in God going through a divorce they never dreamed of, never wanted. Losing a loved one, losing a child, losing a son or a daughter or a spouse, but never wanting to go through that. And yet there they are in this horrible, horrible moment, and yet their faith seems to be unshakable. 
They're going through this circumstance which you just shake your head in, and yet they still have joy. It, it, they still have grief, but they have this thing called joy. They have some peace, and it defies logic. It defies understanding. The Apostle Paul said it. He said, what happens when you have Jesus Christ in your life, you have this peace which passes all understanding. It's a peace that you just humanly can't come to grips with because it just doesn't make sense. Those are incredible stories, incredible people. In fact, some of you are some of those people. Some of you have that kind of faith. Some of you are here, in fact, in church today because you met or you talked with someone, you know someone that has that kind of faith, that believe it in spite of type of story. And let's be honest. Oftentimes, well, okay, I'll be honest for me, I won't include you yet. But oftentimes, many times, when I hear that person, talk to that person, see what they're going through, I find myself saying, I don't have that. I want that. I look at some of you going through some of the things that you've gone through, and I just go, oh, I want that in me. I, w- I want that for me. Now, I'm a pastor. I-, I know what it's supposed to look like, and I know I can be encouraging, but down deep, there are those moments, right, where you look at someone going through something where in your mind you go, I cannot fathom going through that. And if you don't have it, you at least say, I hope I have that. I hope when it happens. I hope when it comes. I want that kind of joy. And when you meet those kind of people, let's be honest, that have this believe it, no matter what circumstance, we kind of go to ourselves, wow, powerful, powerful stories. You might recall this name. If not, you might remember it as I get into it a little bit. You can go look it up. Dr. Francis Collins. Dr. Francis Collins served as the director of the Human Genome Project. Uh, I'll give you some quick background. The, 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 the genome is the simple fact that a genome is in every living thing. Everything, everything living thing has a whole set, a complete set of DNA. That's the genome. That's what that means. Every living thing has a genome, and that, and that genome is the complete set of the DNA of all of the genes. Bottom line is there's like 3.1 billion parts. The genome includes 3.1 billion parts of a human cell in the body. Dr. Collins was assigned to map all of those parts. He was assigned a team to map out 3.1 billion parts of every single cell. Huge undertaking. But by doing so, it's huge, right? By doing that, we better understand and can predict disease and sickness and how to keep people healthy. By doing that, we can, we can have a plan on how to not, not only detect a disease, but then how to attack it, how to fix it, how to change it. How they grow, how to stop them, how they affect families, all of those things. It's just incredible. And this guy, incredibly sharp. He's in charge. He was in charge of mapping out 3.1 little billion specks that you can't even see with your eye. When he was 27 years old, now catch this story, he's a medical doctor. When he was 27 years old, he was in medical school, he was a resident, and he was doing his rounds. And those rounds are the things when the resident doctor comes around every morning and goes through a list of questions. And if you've ever been in the hospital yourself or been with a family member, you know they just they ask these questions like robots. It's the same questions every single day, same question, same question, same question, same question. And you see in the next day, good morning, and they start off with the questions. And you get a little sense they have a personality when they get all done and they say, any questions? There you have your moment. And if you're a doctor, I'm not knocking that because there's a reason why the same questions every time because you have, a, you have a baseline and you want to look at the same information all the time. He's making his rounds and he would observe that he kept bumping into these Christians 
And specifically, many of the patients he was seeing were terminal. So he says, I keep running into these, these Christians who are terminal, terminal diseases. They're dying. They're not going to get better. There is no plan. There is no hope. And yet I keep running into these Christian patients. Now, quick background, he grew up in a, in a strongly agnostic home. No real value to God, no sense, no reality in their lives of God. And that was his background as well, his own, his own belief structure. And yet these Christians facing death kept talking about their faith and they seemed to have joyfulness. They seemed to have a peace. He later wrote a book called The Language of God. And in that book, he wrote these words. He said, I came to a place where I thought to myself, if faith is just a psychological crutch, it must be a very powerful one. If it is nothing more than a veneer of cultured tradition, then why, he asks, then why were these people not shaking their fist at God and demanding that their friends and their family stop all this nonsense about a loving, benevolent supernatural power. He said this, they're dying and God's not answering their prayer and yet they still have faith. He would go on to write and to say, if you ever heard him speak, he would say these people just bothered him because he couldn't understand it. He didn't understand them. And then he also tells the story that one day he walked into the room of one of these terminal patients and went through his list of questions and he asked this patient, kind of on the end of the tail end of things, he just said, and so what do you believe? And so she gave them the answer as to what she believed. But then she did this. She said, listen, you asked me what I believed, and I answered you. Doctor, what do you believe? He said, I turned red. I stammered. I'm not really sure. He said, I, I stammered. I, I don't know what I believe. He then went on to write in his book this, faced with my willful blindness and my arrogance, I began a journey. He said, if there is something to all of this faith stuff, then why wouldn't I want to know? And in the end, he found that the claims of Jesus Christ found in the Gospels were so compelling and so powerful he became a Christian, and he continued to follow his faith and to follow Jesus his entire life, including while he was mapping out the billions of tiny little pieces, specks of the human cell. Finally, he said these words, I found there was more evidence than I could have ever imagined, evidence I never knew existed because I never looked. Jesus gave to John all of the evidence that he could ever need to believe that Jesus was who he said he was. And John said, I looked and I believed. And then John said this, I saw with my own eyes. I touched him. I heard him. I saw it and know it to be true. And so I'm going to write down my experiences. I'm going to write down my stories so that other people will also believe. In fact, look what John wrote in one of his letters in 1 John chapter 1. Not the Gospel of John, but one of the letters of John, he wrote this. 
That which is from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our eyes, our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. He says this, he said, listen, I'm telling you this story based upon what I have seen. He said, what I have seen, these miracles of Jesus, I've touched them, I've seen them, I've seen all of these things which he has done. And I'm going to tell you a story, he said. So we're back in our series, Up Close and Personal. I want to tell you two quick things, a kind of a side note, just pause for just a moment. A couple of weeks ago, I was asked to help a friend of mine in a, a, a preaching class. He was teaching a preaching class to eight to pastors who were starting off in their journey or had been in the journey for a long time but wanted some help in preaching. And so he asked me to lead one of the classes one day. And what you do is you, uh, I, I send them a copy of one of my sermons off of YouTube, our, our church page. Pick a sermon, send it to them. These guys all watch it, critique it. Then I come back and sit for an hour while they fire questions. Usually we just critique my sermons at home over lunch. But this time it's a little different. Um, everyone's going to critique it in this group. And so we sit down. And I found myself going back some of my notes and remembering some of the things that I have, have learned from back in college, but continue to practice. And one of those key things I want you to hear is this. When a preacher stands up to preach, when I stand before you to preach, I just need you to know I don't preach for information. I preach for transformation. What motivates me and what drives me any given time I get a chance to speak is not to inform you, though information's not bad. But we've got more information in this world that we know, that we know what to do with and it doesn't change us. We preach for transformation, for the change of a heart, for the change of a mind, for the change of trajectory of a person's life. We preach for transformation. So bring it up to this moment. This series, and in these weeks together, I preach for transformation. This morning, just another Sunday, but this morning, if you've never given your life to Christ, I pray that what you would hear this morning would be a part of that step in the transformation of your life to make that decision to follow Jesus Christ. But many of us are believers. We're followers of Jesus already. And I preach this morning for the transformation of your heart that you'd be encouraged that whatever it is that you face, whatever it is that you're thinking about, whatever it is that you're processing that no one else sees or knows, you'd be encouraged by God's word. You'd be encouraged by John's testimony. And that would change you, even in this moment today. So let me offer a prayer before we jump in. Lord Jesus, we come to this time looking to your word, and yet again, we pause and we say, just, just take us, use us, speak in us, and change us. We got a lot of stuff going on in our lives. We got a lot of baggage going on in our minds. Uh, for many of us, just getting here today was a chore. For those who are watching at home, though it's convenient and sometimes it's a great distraction because there's so many other things taking place, we need in this moment for your spirit to get our attention. And we yield ourselves to your spirit that you might speak to us and change us. Oh Lord, we don't need more information. We need transformation of your word in us. So we give ourselves to that. We give ourselves to you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's jump in. Last time we were together, we talked about the fact that Jesus saves a wedding. You might recall the first, and I would remind you again, that John uses the word signs, not miracles. Now, they are miracles, but he says there's seven signs. These are the signs that Jesus did because a sign always points to something. And the signs that, G, that J, John's talking about are the things that Jesus did that point to who he is, and he is who he said he is. And we learned the first sign was, a, was at a wedding. 
the catastrophe hit. The, the wedding ran out of wine, and this was a, tra a tragedy of all sorts. You might recall the story where Jesus' mother is there and just walks up to Jesus and nonchalantly says they ran out of wine. And no one has to explain it. He knows it's a tragedy. He knows this is an embarrassment. He knows this is bad. All she's got to do is say they ran out of wine. And he got, I got it, but he gets it before, but not until he says, why are you bother me with this? Remember? He said, I came to save the world, not to save a wedding. Well, he didn't say that. I'm saying that. But I mean, that's kind of inferred in there. What do you bother me with this for? And then, of course, she just walks away. It's as if she just goes, yeah, I know. I came for the, yeah, I know why you're here, but while you're here, they ran out of wine at the wedding. And she walks away. And I love the part where she grabs the closest servants and she says, listen, whatever he says to do, you just do it. And I'm just thinking kind of in my mind, seeing the picture in color, I just picture her stepping off, step, walking away with a smile, taking her place of overseeing things and standing in the corner to say, I wonder how this is going to go. I wonder what he's going to do. They're filling it with water. Well, we don't need water, we need wine. Now, don't forget the fact that Jesus could have just said, hey, go check the, the pictures again, and, they look, and they're all full of wine. And you don't have to do the water deal, you could just fill them with wine. So that's that moment, that's that miracle, that first sign that we see. And after that sign is over, he hangs out in Galilee for a couple of days, and then he heads up to Jerusalem. Jerusalem is south, but they're heading up because, of course, it's on a hill, it's at a higher elevation. And I would suggest to you that whenever the disciples and Jesus go to Jerusalem, there's always some angst that the disciples have, not Jesus. But I would say there's always some angst they have because as they're going to Jerusalem, they probably hold their breath a little bit because they know that every time they go to Jerusalem, something happens. It's not usually good because Jerusalem happens to be the command center of everyone and everything who's against Jesus. So every time they go, I'm expecting the disciples probably hold their breath a little bit to say, okay, here we go. They get to Jerusalem, they go, Jerusalem, they go directly to the temple. That's where Jesus would go to worship. They go to the temple. And wouldn't you know, they're probably thinking we're safe here. Instead, the Bible tells us Jesus gets angry by what he sees. Well, what does he see when he goes to the temple? He sees two things. One, he sees religious people who are selling money changers who are shorting the people. He's not necessarily angry simply because they're there, because they're, they weren't just doing a service. Doing a service for people would be a very good thing, but it's not a service that they're doing. They're ripping the people off. That's the first thing. The second thing, he sees these people who are supposed to be bringing the best of their animals, and instead, they're bringing the worst of their animals to be sacrificed. They're not bringing the best lambs. They're bringing the ones that are going to die anyway. And, and Scripture tells us all along that when we bring our gifts to God, we bring the best. We bring the first fruits. We bring the best of the cattle, the best of the sheep, of our money. We give him the first check we write in that month, not the last check if there's anything left. All those things. Jesus gets angry. He turns the tables over, chases everybody out. And what's interesting, the religious leaders, when that happens, their response is quite interesting. The question they ask is, well, who is he that did it? But more importantly, they said this, what authority does he operate under? Now, what's interesting about that is they weren't necessarily angry that he did it. They just went because they, they could probably make sense of it because what Jesus would have said would be true. So they couldn't argue with that, but all they could then argue is, well, whose authority is he operating under? Because you don't do that without some kind of authority. So, and Jesus in that moment gives our first picture. We haven't even gotten to the text yet, just so you know. The first picture of what he would say is coming, the death and resurrection of Christ. Because the religious leaders say to him, hey, who are you and what authority do you work? And what he said is this, hey, destroy this temple and I'll rebuild it in three days. Then you'll see who I am. And they say this, they go, destroy it, rebuild it in three days? It took us 47 years to build this temple. Uh, they got the wrong temple. So that's that first picture we get. 
And, uh, and in fact, note this, John chapter 2, verse 23. Just note this. While he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. Quick side note, don't forget, John recorded how many signs? Seven. But we have in Scripture different accounts that say, listen, the books couldn't contain all the signs that Jesus did. We only have seven, but don't kid yourself, it's not limited to seven. Jesus was working miracles all the time, and it says here, the people saw them, and according to what they saw, they believed. That makes sense, seeing is believing. Then while he's there, I'm just kind of filling in the gaps of the storyline before we get to the text. Then while he's there, he has a conversation with a guy named Nicodemus. Very famous conversation where he tells Nicodemus, you've got to be born again. And Nicodemus goes, what do you mean born again? Am I supposed to climb in my mother's womb and be born again? And Jesus says, no, nah, you don't get to talk about spiritually be reborn. And then, of course, after that conversation, right after that conversation with Nicodemus, we have given probably the most famous passage of Scripture in any child's life, any kid going to church. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes on him will not perish, but have everlasting life. That all happens in the same context between these two miracles, these two signs. And then Jesus leaves Jerusalem, and he's on his way back to Galilee, and he comes through an area called Samaria, and on his way there, he stops at a well, and he meets a woman there. The only name we have for her is the woman at the well. That's her name, woman at the well, only name we have. Disciples go to get food. He's sitting there in the hot heat of the day. She goes to draw water. She's by herself, and he says, excuse me, would you give me a drink? And she's kind of startled by that, and she actually says two things. She's number one, why are you talking to me? Because one, I'm a woman, and a Jewish man would not talk to a woman, wouldn't have anything to do with a woman, number one. Number two, you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan, and you see us as a mixed breed, and so you have nothing to do with us. And so she goes, so you're a Jewish man talking to a Samaritan woman. I don't even know what to do with that, but I guess you asked nicely for a drink. I'll get you a drink. And, of course, she gets the drink, and uh, along the way... He says, you know, um, we're talking about water here, but, you know, if you had asked me, I'd give you something to drink. You'd never be thirsty again. And so pre-Gatorade pre days, this was very intriguing to her <laughs> as to what I could drink forever. And so she says, tell me more. And you know the story. They talk a little bit more. And the end of the story is she goes and tells her story to all the people of the village, and the people all start believing. Why? Well, because of her story. And uh, now we come into this part of the story where we have this moment, he's leaving Samaria, and he goes back to a place called Cana. That's where the water and the wine wedding took place. He's back in Cana. And here's where our story picks up. He gets to Cana, and a royal official comes to him who's from Capernaum, and, and is looking for Jesus because he's desperate for help. The first sign happened on a happy occasion, a wedding. The second sign is going to happen on a heartbreaking occasion the young boy near death. And here's where the story picks up in verse 46 of John 4. Once more he visited Cana in Galilee where he had turned the water into wine. And there was a certain royal official whose son lay sick at Capernaum. Now when, his, when this man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him and begged him to come and heal his son who was close to death. Unless you people see signs and wonders, Jesus told him, you will never see the royal official said, sir, come down before my son dies. Go, Jesus replied, your son will live. 
the man took Jesus at his word and departed. Now while he was still on his way, his servants met him with the news that his boy was living. When he inquired as to the time when his son got better, they said to him, yesterday at one in the afternoon, the fever left him. Then the father realized that this was the exact time in which Jesus had said to him, your son will live. So he and his whole household believed. And this was the second sign Jesus performed after coming from Judea to Galilee. Now, real quickly, some important background information from our story that we see here. It tells us that this royal official first, he had a son who was sick from Capernaum. Just so you know, Capernaum is back on the Sea of Galilee. Capernaum is a small village right on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. It would be eight hours from Capernaum to Cana if you walked it. It'd be about two hours, maybe three, if you went by horse or by chariot. So it's not very far by horse. It also says he's a royal official. It talks to him about being nobility. Our best guess, as we put all the pieces together, it would probably mean that he's probably a wealthy Jewish aristocrat. Probably, probably a Sadducee. And given his royal title, the fact that defined the word royal and noble, it would mean that he wouldn't have been walking from Capernaum to Canaan. He would have had a horse, he would have had a chariot, and he would have had an entourage that would have gone with him. Now again, it says he's royal, and the wording that's used there, we would believe him to be a Sadducee. Now remember, there's two groups of religious leaders in that day. There are the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Pharisees were extremely religious people, and they kept the law meticulously, and they made sure you kept the law meticulously. Not only did they judge themselves, but they judged you. They believed there'd be a, a resurrection and that God was involved in every single detail of life. They believed that. The Pharisee, the Sadducees, on the other hand, they didn't get involved in all the details. They interpreted the law for you, but they didn't make it personal to them like the Pharisees did. And in fact, they were highly intellectual and they believed in something called determinism. They believed that everything that happened in your life was already predetermined. Yes, there's a God, and He's already predetermined everything. What that means is this. Your health is determined. If you get sick, that's determined. Uh, if, you're, if you get married, that's determined. Who you marry, that's determined. You kid, have you have kids determined? How many kids determined? How your kids turn out, determined. Good kids, bad kids, all predetermined. Well, your rank in society, determined. Who your friends are, all determined. Your job, all determined. You can't control any of it. It just happens. What will be, will be. Their whole philosophy of life is you can't determine anything because it's already determined. Whatever happens, just go with it because you're not going to change it. You don't ask God for things, no personal interaction, because what's going to happen is just going to happen. That's the way that it is. But on this day, all of that gets brushed aside. On this day, all that gets pushed aside because today he's a desperate, desperate father with a dying son. Isn't it interesting that all of our intellect and all of our pride and all of our arrogance gets thrown out the window when facing a crisis? All that stuff gets thrown aside when we need help. On this day, he is a father who is scared to death that he might lose his son. And when he hears that Jesus is in back in the Galilee area, on his way from Jerusalem, he goes to find Jesus. Two and a half to three hours, he goes himself. Doesn't send anybody else. 
He doesn't send his servants. He goes. He's not going to leave this in someone else's hands. He goes, he finds Jesus, and he begs him to hurry back to Capernaum and save his son. Now, pause real quickly. Think about what was probably happening in that home up to that point in time. Life goes along well, it goes like normal, and one day his son's not feeling well, and uh, it'll pass, but hopefully we'll just watch it. He gets worse and worse, and now it's at the point where his son, they know, is near death. They got a sick child. They have a belief system that says what will be, will be. It's all determined. You still grieve, but you can't change it. It's just going to happen. Except for maybe, now I'm reading into the story, I, I, I'll admit that right up front. Maybe on this day, he's got a wife and he says, you know what, will be, will be. And she goes, not today it won't. Not today, it's not going to be what will be. She goes, you know, we've all heard, we've all heard about this guy named Jesus. You've heard about him, I've heard about him. We've all heard that he does things no one else can do. He heals like no one else can heal. You're going to go get him and you're going to bring him here. And he goes, but, but we don't believe any of that stuff. She said, I'll tell you what I believe. I believe that if you don't go and get them, there's going to be two deaths. <laughs> one maybe can't get helped. One can. You, my friend, can help whether you live or die. You're going to get him. So maybe in his heart, as he's getting ready to go, he's even thinking to himself, but I don't believe any of this. I don't believe this, but... What if the rumors are true? What if the rumors are true and I don't go? What if everything I'm hearing, what if it's actually true? What if they're not true? What if I lost? And then about that time, he thinks this, but if I go and they're not true, then I will have left the bedside of my son who is dying. Where do you want to be in a crisis? I want to be right there. And maybe he's thinking to himself, if I leave, I may not see my son alive again. But if I don't leave, there is no hope. Do you feel his pain a little bit? Do you feel the difficulty in the moment? Um, He leaves. For whatever reason, maybe the combination of love, desperation, hopelessness, and, 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 and fear, all he abandons his belief systems. He abandons them all to go find Jesus. He finds Jesus, and it says in verse 47, he went to Jesus, and he begged him to come and heal him. Here's what verse 47 says. When this man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him, and he begged him to come and heal his son, who was close to death. Interesting word, that word begged. Uh, it's It's an odd little word that if you try to look it up and get the fullest definition, the best illustration I can give you is this. It means that he kept begging over and over and over and over again. It has the idea of repetition over and over again. The best way I can describe this is anyone who's had young children who really want something bad and they just don't stop. Please, 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 please. I'm begging you, please, 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 please. To the point where they think if they just say it long enough, you're finally going to go, fine! Please, 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 sir, please, please, please. I'm begging you. That's what it means. It means over and over and over and over again, he keeps saying to Jesus, please come, please come, please come to my house. Over and over again, he pleads. Something happened, think about this, something happened in that three-hour trip. Something happened in that three-hour trip that by the time he gets to Jesus, forget royalty, forget dignity, forget his belief system, my son is dying, please come. I'm desperate here, please, please Please, you ever have one of those prayers? Answer is yes. 
those moments in our lives where something's happening and we're saying, oh God, please, 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 please. We're talking about my son, please, please. We're talking about my wife, please, please. We're talking about my daughter, please, please. God, please show up. Now, it's in this moment that Jesus said something that seems seemingly insensitive. It's at this moment that Jesus said something which seems to be an indictment, not only upon the guy, but upon the people and upon all of us as he's speaking to them. And here's what he says in verse 48. Unless you people see signs and wonders, Jesus told them, you will never believe. The royal official said, sir, once more, sir, please come down before my child dies. Unless you people see these signs and wonders. Now, the English wording here in the translation doesn't help us a lot here. Because, first of all, it says, unless you people. Whenever you use the term you people, that's not a good thing. When I go home and my family is critiquing the sermon over Sunday lunch, I say, I'm so tired of you people. See, that's not a good statement, you people. So whenever you have the term you people, usually not a good sign. But actually, it's not so bad here. Please know something that you may miss. This is not an indictment against them. But it's easy to read it that way. You people, you, you're supposed to just believe and said you want a sign. But it really isn't. It really is a statement. What he's saying, he's saying in this moment, he's telling them the very truth. He's saying this. Why should you believe me? He goes, you know, you people, why would you believe without seeing something to actually believe in? Don't forget, during this time, all sorts of people claim to be the Messiah. So I think he's saying to them, honestly, hey, I'm making some outrageous claims here. I'm claiming to be the Messiah. I'm claiming to be sent from God. I'm claiming to be the Son of God. I think he's saying this. You know what? Why would you believe unless there's something for you to see? There's no way you're going to believe unless I convince you. Seeing is believing. Friends, I just want to remind you again that Jesus does not expect anyone to simply have faith because some preacher like me says, hey, man, you just got to believe. Just got to believe. That's it. He doesn't expect that. Jesus seems to be saying, you need something to believe in. You need something to talk about. And so I'm going to give you something to talk about. Now again, pause for a moment. This nobleman, at any other day, at any other day, he'd be up here on the social ladder, on the cultural ladder. Any other day, he'd be up here, Jesus down here, all the people down here. He would have been well above Jesus in society People would have been appalled at him for being way up here and for being who he was, begging before Jesus. But here he is. Sir, sir, please, I beg you, please come before my son dies. And he's now become a beggar. He's gone from up here, royalty. And now, the text says, he has become a beggar. But now catch this. This beggar has incredible confidence. This guy's become a beggar, but man, his, his, look at him. He goes, listen, I'm begging you. If this rabbi will come to my house, my son's going to live. He's become a beggar, but man, he's a beggar with confidence. Now think about this. Why is he so confident? Why is he so confident? Why did he make this trip? Why did he risk leaving and risk the fact that he may never see his son alive again, maybe seeing his son alive for the last time? Why was he so confident? There's only one answer. You know what it is, right? Because he heard the stories. Think about it. 
He's only confident because he's heard the stories. He's heard all the stories about what Jesus can do, what Jesus has done. He's just heard stories, stories about a Savior, stories about one sent by God, stories of things that were too good to be true. That's all he's heard is stories. I think that he made this trip because in his mind he had two options, only two. The first option I'm thinking he's thinking about is this. Listen, I go and I convince Jesus to come home with me and my son lives. Option one, which is why he doesn't send his servants, right? You wouldn't, you wouldn't have a, a mission like that that you give to anyone else's job. You, t- you do yourself. So I'm thinking he makes a trip because he has two options. Option one is I go, I convince Jesus to come home with me and my son lives. Option two, Jesus refuses to come home with me and my son dies. He's got two options and only one of them works. So he goes. And I think at that moment, I think Jesus smiles because Jesus has a third option. Jesus has a third option that this guy never thought of. And Jesus asks him, now make sure you catch this. And in the next moment, Jesus asks this man the same question he's been asking people for 2,000 plus years. In fact, he asks him to do the same thing he's been asking people to do ever since. He's asking this guy to do what he's asked every one of us to do. Every single one of us. He's been asking us to do the same thing for 2,000 plus years. Here's what he is. He asks him to trust him based upon the testimony of other people. Think about that. He asks this guy to trust him. He asks this guy to entrust his son to him based solely and wholly upon the stories of other people. And Jesus says in verse 50, go. Go. Your son will live. Jesus, with no real explanation, no description, no laying hands at him, he just says, go, your son will live. Now, in this moment, if you're there, wouldn't you like it better Wouldn't it be easier to grab and grab a hold of if in that moment Jesus stops everything and says to the guy, look at me, tell me your story. And the guy tells Jesus the whole story where he's come and to have Jesus grab the guy and put his arm around him and say, I'm going to offer a prayer right now. Right now, Father, you heal this man. You know, wouldn't you like that? Wouldn't you like it if he grabbed a hold of this guy and just said, be healed? And you'd go, that feels better because there's something happened. All he says to him is what? Go. Go on home. Your son's going to live. But on top of that, here's the problem with the go. If we take that word go in the Greek and we tear it apart and dig down, you find that its best meaning is go about your business. See, there's a different word they could use, John could have used, if he wanted to say just go, just go home, get home quick. But he doesn't. He uses a word that means go about your business, which means this. He says, don't worry about it. Go home. But you have to be in a hurry. I mean, while you're here, you might as well do some shopping. While you're here, why don't you get something to eat? You know, you get something to drink, spend the night, get a hotel room, just relax a little bit, and then go home whenever you're ready. That's what it means to go about your business. He goes, I'm not going with you, but you know, don't worry about it. And there's no, worry, there's no hurry. Take your time. Parents, you with me here in this? Dads, are you here with me on this one? This is problematic, right? You're convinced that option one is the only one that works. That's the one where your son lives. And Jesus says no to option one. No, not going with you. Just go about your business and he's going to live. 
this is where we all live, right? In this kind of tension. God, I only have two options. I only have two options in my plan, and only one of them actually works. So I need you to do it my way. Because this is what works. And this is why John's use of the word signs is so brilliant and so powerful. Friends, the miracles of Jesus are not just random acts of kindness. They were signs pointing. What Jesus is doing, Jesus is painting a picture of the path that men and women would be walking for thousands of years, for the past 2,000 years. A path that many of you have walked, a path that many of you are walking, a path that many of you are beginning to walk. This story is a story of a lifetime reduced to a day and reduced to a moment. Reduce is not the right word. This story we're reading is the story of your life and mine condensed to one day and condensed to one single moment. Asked to follow Jesus because others have seen and trusted him. Think about that. Every single one of us who claim to be a follower of Jesus have been asked to say yes to following him simply on the stories of other people. It's an incredible moment. Incredible moment. In fact, it is our lifetimes condensed to a single moment in time. We are asked to entrust our lives to Jesus. We are asked to entrust our health to Jesus. We are asked to entrust our futures to Him. We are asked to entrust our finances to Him. We are asked to entrust to Jesus our healthy children and our sick children. We are asked to entrust to Jesus our wayward children who are making bad decisions and bad choices. We are asked to place in His hands every single thing that we hold dear to us and to do so based on the testimonies of other people. We are asked to trust Jesus on the word of what others have seen, what others have experienced, even when, now catch this, even when our prayers don't seem to be answered. Now, how do you square that one up? We are asked to follow him and to believe him, even when we don't have answers to our prayers or they are not answered the way that we would hope they'd be answered. So here's this nobleman. You can imagine in this moment, he's absolutely stunned, stunned. Uh, I've come all this way in order to get you to come home to save my son. You're there. That's what makes the difference. You're telling me to go, and I don't know what to do. And Jesus says, no, I'm staying here. You go home. And in that moment, I can just imagine there's a pause, a pregnant pause. As he stands there staring at Jesus, trying to, to equate I only had two options. You're giving me a third one? I don't like it. And all of his entourage is watching and listening. Maybe some embarrassed by him, others just intrigued. Everyone's watching. I think the nobleman exhales and he makes a decision that people have been making for 2,000 plus years. With no exaggeration, he makes a decision. That many of you have made a decision that changes the trajectory of someone's life. The decision that could change the trajectory of your life if you make it. The nobleman says, okay. In fact, the text says this, so he took Jesus at his word. 
and he departed. He decides to treat, to trust Jesus. He decides to believe that what he has heard from others is absolutely true, even though he has absolutely no evidence to support it. He says, okay. And then he actually does the most important thing in the whole story. He then behaves as if what Jesus said was true. He then behaves as if what Jesus said was done with no evidence that it was done, no ability to confirm it. He simply takes Jesus at his word. He takes the stories of others at that word, and he begins to live his life as if everything that Jesus said was true. He begins to live as if Jesus really is who he said he was. And now look at back to the text in verse 51. Don't forget, it says, he took him at his word, he departed. Then it says, and while he was still on the way, his servants met him with the news that his boy was living. When he inquired as to the time when his son got better, they said to him, yesterday at one in the afternoon, the fever left him. Then the father realized this was the exact time in which Jesus had said to him, your son will live. The exact time. This nobleman turned around and left, and he did something that we, we say in the church for years. I grew up in a church as a kid. I heard this all the time. He walked away in faith, not by sight. He hadn't seen anything yet. He walks away in faith. Now, I want you to think about this. Let me explain how I, what, we, what we see in the story that you might miss. How long of a journey was it um, from Capernaum to Canaan by horse? Two, three hours. When did this conversation with Jesus happen based on his interaction with the servants that were coming? On a side note, if you're on your way home with a dying son and you see your servants coming, you expecting good news or bad? bad. Nobody comes to bring good news. And so you see them, your heart probably skips a beat for a moment and they walk in and say, he's alive. But when does that conversation happen? It happens the next day because they say that when did he get well? He got well at one o'clock previous day, yesterday, one in the afternoon. Now, wait a minute. If it's a two to three hour trip by horse and this conversation happens with Jesus at one o'clock, you got all the time in the world to turn around and go home and be home by 5 o'clock. Let's even give you an extra hour for rest stops and something to eat. you got plenty of time to stop, but you're not traveling all night in the middle of darkness. You're home by 5 o'clock. So you know what it means. It means he did exactly what Jesus said. He went about his business. Now listen, if, if, if it's you or me, what are we going to do? I'm on that horse, and I'm telling my entourage, catch me if you can. I am going home. This guy doesn't leave for the ne next day. What's that mean? It means he did exactly what Jesus said. He began living as if what Jesus said was true. This guy does exactly as Jesus says, takes his time, heads back home. While he's still on his way, here come the servants. Expecting bad news, I expect, he gets really good news. And then it says, then he hurries home. There's a child that was sick. And he gets home, and he tells his wife what happens, and then he says this, and at the exact same time, when he said to me, your son will live, that's when his fever broke, they told me. And there's a chill that runs down their spine. And look what it says at the end of verse 53. The time, the, then the father realized that this was the exact time 
in which Jesus had said to him, your son will live. So he and his whole household believed. Well, of course they believed. Because look what they just saw. Of course they believed. Seeing is believing. But I'd also remind you, but this dad, this father, actually believed by hearing before the seeing. Verse 54, this was the second sign Jesus performed after coming from Judea to Galilee. I grew up in a church where I heard all the time, walk by faith, not by sight, walk by faith, not by sight. But I don't ever remember someone telling me what that means. I can say to you, to, to you with great passion and gusto, hey, walk by faith, not by sight. And you'd go, yeah. You know, and we walk out the door, you know, carrying our flags. We're going to walk by faith. We're going to walk by faith. And then tri trial comes, crisis comes. We go, I don't know what that means. I don't know what that means. So today, we're going to make sure we know what it means. Walking by faith, today we answer the question, means this. Walking by faith means living today as if Jesus is who he claimed to be. Living by faith today means that you live today as if what Jesus has said is true. Living by faith means I walk through today and every single day of your life believing that God is your heavenly father. Not like your earthly father that gets it wrong, but the sublimely perfect heavenly father. Whenever in your life you get confused about who God is, just think perfect father. Whenever things aren't going according to your plan, just remember sublimely perfect father. We live as if God is who he said he is, regardless of the circumstances. Where we often cannot see through them, we can't see around them, we can't see that God is still there, but we act and live as if what God said is absolutely true, and we believe it to be true. We live as if, as if God has, everything God has said and promised is true, even when we don't have the answer to prayer that we've been waiting on. So let's wrap up. Now, this is critical. What we're talking about here, this walking in faith, this believing in spite of moment, this is what changes a world. This is what changes a culture. This is what changes a human heart. This is what changes a marriage. This is what changes a workplace. Whatever that thing that you're battling, this is what changes what you're battling. To walk by faith, to live your life with confidence, is, is that Jesus is who he claimed to be. It's just that simple. And that you can trust him in this life's journey. Think about this. As we wrap up, Christianity has changed the world. Remember I told you the story that from the time of the, the, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ and to the Easter story, to the day he came out of the grave, from that point forward for 300 years, the Christians were incredibly persecuted. I mean, in those first uh, 50, 60, 70, 100 years, Christians, most of them gave up their lives. The disciples were mostly martyred. I mean, a horrible time of persecution. But remember, in just 300 years from the time of the crucifixion, 300 years later, guess what the, the, the national religion of all of the Roman Empire was? Christian. Christianity had taken over the entire world. 
the entire known world. Not because everyone got what they asked for. Not because everyone prayed their little prayers and everything happened just the way they wanted it to happen. It happened because there were believers that trusted God when their health was not restored. They trusted God when their life was going to be taken for believing in that God. They believed in Jesus Christ when their daughter died, when their son was taken, when they lost their spouse early. They still believed that Jesus is who he said he was. And because they believed unwaveringly, not based on having seen it themselves, but have believed the testimony of others, it became true for them as well. And then a world begins to change. Final verse for today, John chapter 20, verse 29. Jesus said to them, because you have seen me, you have believed. But blessed are those who have not seen and have yet believed. Now, please know that's not an indictment on all the people who saw. Because Jesus, no, you're not going to see without believing. You're not going to believe without seeing. And so he did the thing so they would see. But he says this, they saw and they believed. I expect that. But you. You said yes simply on the testimony of others. You, my friend, will be blessed. If you are here this morning and you've never given your life to Jesus Christ, do it and begin to experience the blessing of God. And if you are here this morning and you have a long history of following Jesus, oh, please be encouraged. What you believe is not fairy tale or fancy. It's grounded in absolute truth. And on top of that, he says to you, and you are blessed for believing in me. Stand, please, let's pray. Lord Jesus, may your word transform us. For the person who has never given their life to you, that even in this moment, they might just say, I believe it. Not because Pastor Scott was all fired up. I believe it because it's true. And may they start their journey walking with you. And may they find you to be absolutely true. And what will they be blessed? And for those of us who are your faithful followers, we know what it's like to get beat up in the world. We know what it's like at times because you've told us to bring all of our needs and concerns to you. So we bring them to you. So we know what it's like to pray and to need things and ask for you to intervene. And we also know what it's like when we pray and we don't quite see the answer the way that we expected. And yet, it doesn't change our faith in you. May we walk in faith today. May we live today believing that you are who you say you are, and what you said is true, even when we can't see it. Dismiss us in your grace, in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.